0: And now here's your host, Grand Canyon whitewater guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Today the Trail Less Traveled is being recorded inside of a 2006 Chevy Express Bluebird Cutaway five-window short bus. And my guest today has been living in this bus for three years. Before that, she was living in a compact car for two years. Her name is Tamara and she is a backcountry guide at Wilderness Therapy. She is a primitive wilderness survival guide. She's a nomad and she's a minimalist. So to just get started I want to say thank you so much Tamara for making time to join me today on The Trailless Travel. Traveled. Thanks for the opportunity. I was wondering if we could talk about your early years becoming a nomad, becoming a survivalist, becoming a minimalist. So my first mm. question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood?
1: I was born in Texas, but I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. My folks were both transplants to the south, and so uh, we were different than the folks around us in a a couple of ways. And Memphis is a, a really polar culture, actually, at least to the other places that I've been since. I've been to a whole lot of places, and Memphis is pretty unique in a lot of ways, and I don't want to put a connotation on it, but just, you know, when you look at the numbers, like, we've got extremely high violent crime and poor health and poor education and corrupt politics and, you know, some racism, not that that's as easily quantifiable, but it was a little bit rough growing up there. And I am the second of eight children. I have an older sister and six younger brothers. It's interesting, my father and I, we either had a terrible relationship or no relationship depending on what chapter of my life, but he was an adventurer. My dad actually converted a school bus. Uh, He bought a church bus and converted it into a camper for us. He put in bunk beds and a master bedroom and a dinette and, you know, and all of this. And I remember being a little bit embarrassed by it, you know, like, oh, dad, this is so weird. And he loved backpacking. And we would go, it seems like once a year and have adventure in the Smoky Mountains. However, in Memphis, there just isn't a whole lot of outdoor culture at all. But we would also take his sailboats out on the river in Mississippi. Around on the lake in Mississippi, that is, there was connection to nature in that way. And also, we lived out in the country. It's developed into a suburb now, but where I grew up was really rural when I was a young child. And so I would take the dog and go run through the cotton fields and explore the creek and catch crawdads. And and then as I got into adolescence, I really withdrew from the natural world and you know, into my room, you know, specifically like with turned off the lights and lit incense and listened to the cure. (laughs) And so, so it was a reawakening for me to rediscover the natural world and to rediscover my place in the natural world. And I was very much programmed by the time I got to my early adulthood, I was very much programmed in the conventional American way. And I had over 200 pairs of shoes at one point and I couldn't not shop. I was shopping one to three times a week. And how I felt and functioned on any given day, depended first and foremost on how I looked that day, how I was able to interact with people and how I felt in general was all about how I looked on that particular day, which is a little bit of a prison, really. Mm -hmm. Everything shifted for me. The big shift really was in 2006, I had been working in the beauty industry and one day I woke up and decided I'm going to quit my job and move somewhere I've never been. I just, got a little bee in my bonnet or something. And by the end of the day, I had decided to go to Mesa, Arizona, and people would say, why? And I'm like, I have no idea. I'd never been there. I didn't know anyone, and I didn't have a plan. But just a few short weeks later, I was in Mesa, Arizona, and my money ran out really quick because I couldn't not shop. And I, for the first time in my life, I had a hard time finding a job. And everywhere I went, people were talking about the Anasazi Foundation, which is a wilderness therapy program. It's actually the original wilderness therapy program. Um, and this is based in Arizona and I had no interest in that. You know, everyone I met who was involved with it, I knew they were very different than me. They dressed different. They talked different. They smelled different and nothing about it appealed to me except for it was interesting. It was fascinating, but I was not personally drawn to it. I'm like, that's so far from me. And like, maybe part of me wished that I was that brave, but nothing in you know, my life thus far had indicated that I was, but it just came at me from so many different directions. And I have learned that that is how the divine works with me. And usually it's more of like a suggestion, like, Hey, you should probably check out this Avenue, you know, but whatever, do your thing. But there's been twice in my life when I've been really aggressively led by the divine, where it feels like the entire universe shifts in all of the necessary ways to funnel me in, in spite of myself, you know, because this thing is so vital to, what I'm here on the planet to do and who I actually am meant to be. And this was one of those cases. And so it was just coming at me from every direction so much. So it was definitely on my radar and I'm like, there's something here, but terrified of the concept, you know, everything about it scared me to death and was unappealing to me because I had no connection with the natural world. I hated hiking and camping. So one day I'm out looking for a job and I see this building and the sign says the Anasazi foundation. I'm like, there's that place I keep hearing about. And why am I pulling into the parking lot? <laughs> Like, I found myself, like, in the parking lot in spite of myself. What do I think I'm doing right now? And I go in and I talk to the field director, and everything he said was terrifying. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, why am I filling out this application? And the whole process was like that. It's like every step of it, I was like, I'm not going any further with this. And then I would just kind of, like, just stick my nose around the corner, step one step farther, you know. And, you know, the people in my world were kind of laughing, like, okay, Tam, who are you kidding, you know. And then when I finally was at the training, I learned after the fact that the other trainees had bet money that I wouldn't last a week. <laughs> and, so, and actually, David Holiday was in my training group. He was recertifying. He and Jill were recertifying. They'd been working there for some time, but every year you retrain. And so they were in my training group. And I remember just thinking, I did not like David. I just thought he was such a weirdo. And I did not make any effort to connect with him. And actually, there's a really special story because I was in a position where I had spent all my money. And now I needed gear to do this job and unbeknownst to me he was taking up a collection for me to get boots and gear that I needed (laughs) and this guy who was the only person that I hadn't made any effort to see as a person saw me mm-hmm. and that was so humbling and it was really preparatory for the work that we would do with our kids and stuff but that's kind of a little sidebar anyway so I'm going through the training and I had been a quote adolescent in crisis myself and I had been in programs and nothing effective you know and the philosophy of the Anasazi Foundation is unconventional in adolescent intervention it's the farthest thing from behavior modification where the desired outcome is to get the kid to do this or stop doing that and the method is contrived consequences contrived incentives, point systems, level systems a lot of it feels like punishment for bad behavior and you know you know you've succeeded when you've got a kid who follows rules and they're behaviorally trained and compliant Mm -hmm. so that's what I had experienced and that is the conventional approach this was instead of employing the carrot or the stick or that external motivation it's influenced through relationship genuinely seeing and loving and investing in these kids and recognizing you're not better than them They're troubled youth, we're troubled adults, we're all on the path, we all need the medicine. But as guides, we're a little ahead on the path. And we're helping people ascend because we're on next higher ground, just a little higher. That approach was just so beautiful to me. And I just thought, oh my gosh, what a difference it would have made if someone had seen me Mm -hmm. and helped me rather than punished me or tried to manipulate me into behaving in a way that's convenient for them. That rigid, one size fits all, institutionalized approach. Anyway, so I was so moved by that philosophical approach and therapeutic model alone that I was really like drawn in all the more. But the practical aspects of the job were so horrifying to me. I remember just every day I it would just like the reality of it and the details of it would just start to settle in. And I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, like even the fact that you couldn't bring cosmetics was really difficult for me, let alone deodorant, you know? And it's so funny to me now in hindsight, because I don't know when the last shower like real shower I had was, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. But at the time it was all quite shocking to me and really daunting and really overwhelming and really intimidating. And I did feel incredibly ill-prepared as I was. And so then the infield portion of the training came along and it was all completely new and unprecedented for me. I had never slept in the back country and I had never, quote, camped without a tent or a cabin. You know, it was very intimidating, but... There were so many awakenings, as we say, that came to me in that three days of that infield training out in the wilderness. And the first one that I can identify was at the Anasazi Foundation, we would do what we called sacred circle. And so we would stand in a circle and everyone would turn their back to the inside of the circle and take their time to either pray if they pray, meditate if they meditate, set intention, whatever they want to do with that time. And then when each person has done what they need to do, they turn back towards the circle. And then once everyone has turned back towards the circle, whatever Ritual that you know to connect us or whatever, and then the sacred circles closed. So, we were about to go to bed and we were going to do a sacred circle. And so, I said to the divine, You put me here, and I know it, there's no other way I'd be here. And I said, But I can't sleep in this environment because I know for a fact that I'm going to be eaten by a mountain lion, stung by a scorpion, bit by a brown recluse, rolled over by a boulder, struck by lightning, drowned in a flash flood, froze to death. You know, I was just certain that. You know, there was immediate peril on every level to shutting my eyes and going to sleep in this environment. And an understanding came to my mind that had not previously been there. And the understanding was Tamara, you are safer here than you are in the city amongst the human animal. Because the human animal is the only one that has agency and autonomy. Plants and animals and rocks and water are not capable of malice. And they're not capable of, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, evil. Mm-hmm. And they obey their creator. They obey the laws of nature. The human animal can go rogue. is unpredictable. And so basically, whatever befalls you here, befalls you in a natural way. And in the hands of and the design of a wise and loving creator. And I was so satisfied by that answer. It made, it clicked and it made perfect sense. And I slept like a baby. Anyway, so I completed the training. And then the last part of the training was a week deep in the wilderness. And like once you're in, you're in because you're so deep in the wilderness. You'd have to have a bone sticking out and they'd send in a helicopter to get out. And so, and if that hadn't been the case, I would have quit any number of times during this week. Mm-hmm. But because I didn't have the option of quitting during that week, By the end of the week, I loved it just ever so slightly more than I hated it. And I definitely hated it, it was so humbling. I cried so much. I was just lagging so far behind my group and they'd have to stop and wait for me. I mean, carrying the weight in the heat, up inclines for miles. And these kids were just smoking me, man. They were just so much better at it than I was. Fortunately, they were also incredibly compassionate. There was this particular 15-year-old boy who just hung back with me even though he didn't need to and just was so supportive. And I've always wished I could remember his name and find him because what an angel he was to me at that time when it was just so difficult. It, was, it meant so much to have a companion and someone who had my back and who saw me. I recognized that there was something here for me and I could see the wisdom in the universe funneling me into this experience. And I knew it was the medicine I had never known I needed. And so many things, even in that first 11 days in the field, started to just, even in that short time, a lot of the programming started to show you know, a lot of the false programming that I had really just bought into Mm -hmm. and that I was a product of started to show. And when you're immersed in your natural habitat, even for as little as three days, you start to become a human animal. You start to sync with the sun. You go to bed when it's time to go to bed. You sleep well. You wake up with energy instead of like, you know, and my cognition is more clear. I have energy for the day. I connect with people better. I eat for fuel. I don't have the addictions and the food cravings. And that was a brand new experience for me to be a human animal in my natural habitat. And really immediately I started to recognize how bizarre the way that we human is as a modern human it started to look weird to me even then. To come back from that experience where I was carrying literally everything on my back, in a backpack I made, by the way, out of a wool blanket bundle, and I was so fulfilled, so content, so happy, and connecting so well with people. I was incredibly physically uncomfortable because that's a process of adaptation. You know, I was adapting to that environment, which fortunately humans are very ad- adaptable, but the process is uncomfortable. I had this experience and then I come back to my apartment where I'm paying extra rent for extra rooms to store my shoes and clothes. And I look around and I'm like, I'm a sick animal. You know, there's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the awakening just continued and the programming continued to just peel off as I'm going through this process of becoming me. Me and unbecoming all of those superfluous and superficial layers the wilderness brings clarity it brings perspective and proper priorities and so the path towards minimalism really started with this immersive wilderness experience when i recognized i was so happy with just what i could carry and so what i know now is that what i need as a human being is thermoregulation food water and people and everything else is either bonus or burden depending on your relationship to it
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so things can be a tremendous blessing but not when they own you not when you're a slave to it mm-hmm. and I was I have a much more intentional much different relationship with stuff now than I did then I noticed a couple years ago that the high I used to get shopping and accumulating I get a little bit of that now when I let something go mm-hmm. <laughs> which was such a neat realization but the process It was not immediate conversion and application rarely come simultaneously right and there was an angst that came with that because i saw with more clarity now but i still had this compulsion addictions don't just evaporate with enlightenment and so honestly it was eight years of trying and failing and crying and praying and 12 stepping even really just wrestling and struggling with the process of overcoming this addiction to stop accumulating and to be able to purge to be able to let go and both were extremely difficult for me but it was a concerted consistent effort over the course of eight years and in such baby steps that it felt like failure all the way along until you look back at the miles you've covered you know culminating, I had a spine injury in 2013. And so I thought, Oh, my days uh, in the wilderness are over, I guess I better get an office job. My other passion is adoption. That's a whole other thing. And I was offered a a job working in adoption as helping people to navigate adoption reunion and to locate biological relatives from closed adoptions. That's something I'm still very passionate about. And so I did take that job. The culture of the company didn't work for me. And also sitting in an office didn't work for me because I now knew too much. I was not created to sit in a box and look at a screen all day. And I told myself, you know, I'll have discipline, I'll have balance, I'll still be connected with nature, I'll still have a social life, I'll still be active in my body. But ultimately, I could never find that balance. And so when my department was outsourced, and they wanted to switch me to another department, I was like, no, sir. So I did that for a year. And at the end of the year, I was like, I just want to get that out of my system. And reconnect with my body and the planet and people. And so I decided I'm going to do the last big purge. Which I had been working my way towards. I'm going to do the last big purge. I'm going to fit what I can in my car. And I'm going to hit the road. And I'm going to travel for three months. I kept extending my travel plans, though. And so it kept going a little longer and a little longer and a little longer. Oh, I have to go here. I have to see this. I have to do this. I have to visit so-and-so or whatever. Until, you know, a couple months farther than three months at some point, I was like, who am I kidding? This is a lifestyle. I don't want to go back to working full-time or paying rent. And I've discovered I don't have to. And I actually had also gotten a small storage unit. But after a few months of travel, I was like, Tam, just go. Just go all the way. You're so close. You haven't seen that stuff in however many months. Just get truly free. Go all the way. And so I just mustered up the courage. And I went to that storage unit. And it was, I mean, people who know addiction, <laughs> it is such a wrestle it is such a fight and such a struggle but i went to that storage unit and i went through it and i'm donating donating and donating kept just like one plastic tote full of truly sentimental things and mementos that's in the little shed at my brother's house the storage unit is clean and swept out and i start skipping around the parking lot and going i'm free i'm free and i was mostly just kidding around i was with a friend and i was initially just being silly but suddenly, just like, I was overcome with emotion. And I started weeping. And I was like, I'm free. Like this battle that had been ongoing for the better part of a decade. <laughs> that I had like lost so many battles in this war. It was victory. And it was deliverance. I'd been delivered from captivity is what it was. And it was the culmination of all of that work and failure and trial and error. And there was such a sense of absolute just lightness and freedom and liberation and accomplishment. And I felt, what can't I do? You know, so anyway, so at this point it was just what I could fit in my Kia Rio. And that is more than enough. After you've been a backpacking guide, living in a car is easy because you can carry a lot more in a car than a backpack and it carries you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I did that for two years and it was really interesting how people viewed that Yeah, people would assume I was down on my luck, even though it was very much an intentional choice. And I was still working. I actually still had the money to pay rent. You know, I had had savings and now I wasn't shopping anymore and you don't buy stuff. Where are you going to put it? And so I actually had money living in my car was a very intentional choice, but it was so interesting to see how people viewed me. You know, people would be like, Oh, I hope things start looking up for you. And I'm like, I hope things start looking up for you. Like you're like paying a mortgage and working full time. And like, you know, I'm on this planet, but anyway, so after two years, I wanted to upgrade because a car, it's a little bit of storage and it's shelter. Mm -hmm. And I was grateful for it. And I was living in abundance, but I was ready to have a home and a car is not a home. So I set the intention for 2017 that I wanted a home I could stand up in.
0: That's the voice of Tamara. And we are sitting inside of her 2006 Chevy Express bluebird cutaway five window short bus she's been inside this bus for three years and she was just telling us about the journey to becoming a nomad to becoming a minimalist and the two years that she spent living in a compact car before finding this bus tamra is a backcountry guide at wilderness therapy she also is a guide for primitive living and wilderness survival we're going to talk more about that and in particular get a tour of the bus when we come back but tamra it's now time for a song so is there a song you can share with us that reminds you of your early years
1: Yeah, my favorite song as a child, I learned at church, so I'll just sing it.
2: I remember how it goes. Whenever I hear the song of a bird, or look at the blue, blue sky. Whenever I feel the rain on my face, or the wind as it rushes by. Whenever I touch a velvet rose, or walk by a lilac tree, I'm glad that I live on this beautiful earth, heavenly parents created for me. They gave me my eyes that I might see the color of butterfly wings. They gave me my ears that I might hear the magical sound of things. They gave me my life, my mind, my heart. I thank them reverently for all this creation of which I'm a part. Yes, I know heavenly parents love me.
0: The Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs are made possible by the support from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon can offer you a subscription-style payment method in the amount of your choice in exchange for priority access to the Trail Less Traveled visual series, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes footage, and ad-free podcasting. Please consider helping keep my fiscal raft afloat by visiting patreon.com slash Trail Less Traveled. We're sitting here inside of a 2006 Chevy Express Bluebird Cutaway five window short bus. And my guest on the Trail Less Traveled has been living in this bus for three years. Before that, she lived for two years in a compact car. And her name is Tamara. She is a backcountry guide at Wilderness Therapy. She also teaches primitive living and wilderness survival. She is a nomad. She's a minimalist. Tamara, I'd like to talk to you now about the bus. Even now, just to give them an idea of where we're sitting, I wish more than anything that they could sit here. I'm looking at a beautiful assortment of vintage suitcases, wicker baskets above my head. I know many of my listeners have contacted me about buses that they're converting. So I was wondering if you could inspire and inform us a little bit about that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, this space is so perfect for me. So it's not the shortest of short buses. It's the next size up and it's the perfect amount of space. One of my favorite things about living in a bus is the windows. It's the natural light and airflow. I park in ideally in natural spaces. I like to be on public lands, be a lumber forest service or at trailheads or up canyons and so but even when I'm inside I still am connected with nature, Mm -hmm. and I like to be in warm places. (laughs) So, and it's nice, like today it's a windy day, and so it's a little bit chilly outside, but I've got this greenhouse effect where it's nice and warm in here. Like Mandela said, I've got my little sink, I've got my stove, I have a fridge, I've got a shower stall and a little DIY homemade compost toilet. And we're sitting at my dinette, which is um, two of the original seats turned towards each other with a cute little table between. So I can eat here, do projects here, entertain and have conversations. And they have a full size bed with tons of storage Below and then above is the suitcases Mandela was referring to where I keep my clothing. And then, yeah, lots of cupboards and, and drawers in the kitchen as well. I have a propane heater and propane stove, but everything else is on solar electricity. I have 320 watts, I believe, and two batteries and an 1800 watt inverter. You know, on the spectrum between a rusty floor and a mattress and some of the schoolies I've been in that are so high tech and so professional and so modern, it's the perfect, like on the spectrum, it's perfect for me, mm-hmm. my places. So the way that I acquired this home in 2016, I attended an event put on by Jamie Diamond, whose YouTube channel is Enigmatic Nomadics, And the event is called the Van Build Festival. And this is just such a brilliant inspired concept that Jamie created. So the idea was, and this was year one of this event. And so the idea was, whatever it is you're living in on the road, bring it out. And get some help with your conversion or your build or any upgrades that you want. And then people with time, talent, and tools would come out to the desert as well and offer free labor.
0: Wow, I've got goosebumps.
1: Isn't that amazing? So it's a community based on generosity. In the first year, there was less than 50 of us, I think. And we were immediate family, you know. And, I mean, it was just sublime. And so beautiful because there are people who are just like mostly retired men who are like, I want to help. You know, like I want something to do and I want to connect with people. So it was really such a win-win. And then people who are like independent people, but also who just didn't have the skills, who are learning alongside of whoever's helping them out and things like that. Just beautiful event. So I, I went to Jamie early in the event and I introduced myself and I said, I love what you're doing. I have no skills. How can I help? And he handed me his camera and he said, go do interviews with people, do tours of the rigs, get their story for my YouTube channel. So similar to what you're doing. So I took the camera and I went around and I talked to people and I really enjoyed it. And it turns out I have a knack. And so when I saw him at the next nomad gathering I was at in January, a different event, he said, "Tamara, my viewers love you and I need more footage. And I'm like, you do great stuff, man, whatever you need. But meanwhile, as the new year had turned over, I had made this intention for 2017 that I wanted a home I could stand up in. And in my mind, that meant by December, I would have acquired a vehicle, probably a rusty floor and a mattress. And over the next three years or whatever, I would DIY it into something resembling a home. You know, I would trial and error, figure it out. And, and that's what that intention meant to me. Well, Jamie calls me in the spring and he says, Tam, I've got this idea. I want to do a video series, um, documenting one conversion start to finish that'll be kind of a how-to resource for people where you know like even talking about how do you select a vehicle and just every aspect of the process so people will have that blueprint or whatever and he said and you know and I'll have volunteers and you know people will become dear to the characters and then I want to give it as a grand gift he's like what do you think and I'm like this is brilliant I'm like I'm so excited for this people are gonna love it mm-hmm. and again just Jamie's whole thing is about just adding goodness into the mix, showcasing. The better part of humanity and don't we need that in our media. Oh my goodness. So I'm just stoked about everything he does. And so I was like, I love it. And he's like, well what do you say? And I'm like, yeah, good. And he's like, but Tamara, will you be the recipient? And I was like, wait, 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 wait.
2: What? You know, I'm just like,
1: wait, what? And I'm like trying to push back, like, ah, uh, surely there are better people, you know, like more deserving or, you know, or more in need or whatever, you know. And I took three days to think about it because, I mean, for me, a lot of the point is independence and it's something for nothing. And to this day, it's uncomfortable. When I think about it and when I talk about it, remembering that my home and really, you know, it's everything to me. Mm -hmm. It was a gift. There's a, a really humbling component to that that still feels uncomfortable, but in a really healthy way, in a way that's good for me. But you don't manifest something and then say no when it falls in your lap. And so that would be ungrateful. So ultimately, I was like, absolutely, man. And so he and three or four of his viewers volunteered. And in three and a half weeks, they custom designed and built everything. And I love it. I absolutely love it. And then over the three and a half years since, I have made it my own. I've made it cute, you know, and it's never done. There's a long list of upgrades and modifications and improvements. Exactly. Like any home. Yeah. Yeah. It still just blows my mind. And it's been a great gratitude boost for me. My home reminds me to be grateful. And also my home reminds me to be generous. And I've been such a, I was never ungenerous, but I've been such a more generous person since living in this home. Because if someone asks me for something, how can I not? (laughs) You know what I mean? Or if I'm aware of someone who needs something or wants something and I've got it, who would I be? being the recipient of something I can never pay back. I literally can't. And also when people come in my home all the time, all the time people say, oh, it feels good in here. There's good energy in here. That's because it is the physical manifestation of the generosity of strangers, and I'm talking about lots of strangers, because I didn't know he was going to crowdsource it, crowdfund it, and that was uncomfortable, but, you know, he had an Amazon wish list, this fridge was donated by a woman named Robin Barnes, that range was donated by Jax Austin, that solar controller was Ben Wambler, there was a guy named Steve who donated a fan, you know, people donated the chemical toilet that I initially had, and, and so there's so much generosity, human generosity, towards a stranger mostly, mm-hmm. you know, in this home. And so, of course, it feels good, you know. I just still can't, I still can't believe it. It's so crazy to me. So, yeah, that's how I came to have the bus, you know, through no uh, merit of my own. <laughs> so beautiful, wow. Isn't it amazing?
0: Wow, that's the voice of Tamara, and she's a backcountry guide at Wilderness Therapy, and she teaches and guides primitive living and wilderness survival. She's a nomad, she's a minimalist, and we're sitting inside of her 2006 chevy express bluebird cutaway five window short bus she's been living in this bus for three years before that she was living in a compact car for two years can you tell us a little bit more information if people were keen to be like wow i want to youtube right now the start of Tamara's bus from start to finish and and learn from it for my conversion. How do we find Jamie?
1: Yeah. So Jamie diamond, his channel is called enigmatic nomadics. Uh, you can watch those videos. He's gotten better at editing. Some of them are a little long, but yeah, it's still good stuff. And you know, it's really just impressive what people put into it. And the dudes who worked on the build are just such endearing, lovable dudes who I still just adore. So I did just attend Palooza, which is a gathering of people who live in school buses. And mm-hmm. that's every January in the court site area, Ehrenberg specifically. And then there's other gatherings for people who want to get together with other travelers or even people who want to come investigate the lifestyle. Yeah. You know, so.
0: Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, Tamara, it's now time for a song. So I was wondering if there's a song that reminds you of living in your beautiful home here. This mm-hmm. 2006 Chevy Express oh. 5 window cutaway short bus.
2: Oh my
1: gosh. There's this really cute, really silly song that I don't sing well at all but that I love I'm not a country fan in general but I really like the little bit I've heard from this one gal called Casey Musgroves Musgraves something like that mm-hmm. and so there is a song that is very much akin to this lifestyle it's so cute okay I do not sing it well
2: <laughs> okay here it goes Who needs a house up on a hill when you could have one on four wheels and take it anywhere the wind might blow? You don't ever have to mow the yard, just hang a map, throw a dart, pray to God the engine starts and go. (laughs) Water and electric, a place to drain the septic, any KOA is A-OK as long as I'm with you. So come on, hitch your wagon to the living room I'm dragging. If I can't bring you to my house, I'll bring my house to you. Parking lots and county lines, counting mile marker signs, where the buffalo and the antelope all roam. Greetings from Niagara Falls, one more postcard for the wall, off in our home sweet home, away from home. Water and electric, a place to drain the septic, any KOA is a okay as long as I'm with you. So come on, hitch your wagon to the living room i'm dragging if i can't bring you to my house i'll bring my house to you and washington and idaho and oregon and away we go to tennessee and arkansas no we won't stop till we've seen them all till we've seen them all so what else could you ask for you don't even need a passport to see the whole world from our living room so come on hitch your wagon to the happiness i'm dragging if i can't bring you to my house i'll bring my house to you No matter where we go, we'll never be alone. Anywhere beside you is a place that I call home. (laughs) Beautiful. nice. I always smile whenever I'm singing it. It's so cute.
0: (laughs) We're sitting inside of a 2006 Chevy Express Bluebird Cutaway 5-window short bus. And I'm sitting here with Tamara. She's been living in this bus for three years. Before that, she lived in a compact car for two years. Tamara is a nomad. She's a minimalist. She's a backcountry guide at wilderness therapy, and she teaches primitive living and wilderness survival. So, Tamara, now I'd like to talk to you about primitive living, wilderness survival, wilderness therapy. But before we do that, I was wondering if you could paint the picture to the listener as to what this landscape is like. We're here in the Sonoran Desert. Could you paint the picture to them about what it looks like when you look out the window here from your bus?
1: I see saguaros. I see Chaparral, I see Palo Verde, and I see a lot of dirt. <laughs> I know there's Choya and Akateo out there. And the Sonoran Desert is such a special place, but really special to me because I was born in the Sonoran Desert. And metaphorically speaking, like, you know, my time at Anasazi, that was really the beginning of my life in so many ways. And so I feel at home in the Sonoran Desert. It's my birthplace. Like I said, I grew up in Memphis, which couldn't be more opposite, you know of a landscape and an environment i mean when i first came to the desert i was like this is uninhabitable who told people they could be here you Mm -hmm. know but now i'm such a desert rat and it is such my home and i love the plants and the animals of the sonoran desert and also there's kids running around playing tag and riding bikes because there's like-minded folks around here who are our common thread is our interest in primitive skills so yeah you couldn't ask for a better spot to be awesome So I'm an instructor at the California Survival School working for Dan Baird, who you also interviewed. And I've been working for him, I think, since 2013. Mm -hmm. And so that's just contracting kind of whenever he has gigs available. And then also I work independently just whenever people hit me up. I don't really do the hustle. I don't really advertise. But just however often people say, hey, Tam, do you want to come teach our homeschool co-op? Or I'm getting a group of friends together. Do you want to do a little, you know, intensive on thermoregulation or on water or on foraging or, you know, whatever the thing is? And so, yeah, I kind of just do whatever Dan hires me for or whatever people hire me for. And through California Survival School, I'm sure he talked to you about it, but we'll do anything from day class covering the basics to a five-day primitive excursion.
0: I'd love to talk to you about thermal regulation, about water, about foraging, Mm -hmm. about other survival tools that you share, and also kind of dive into wilderness therapy.
1: Cool. Okay, so core survival, shelter, water, fire, food, Those are your survival priorities based on the rule of threes. You can die in as little as three hours from exposure, which is, you know, your core body temperature going too high or too low, getting too hot or too cold. You can die in as little as three days without water. And then you can die in, some people say three weeks, some people say 30 days without food. And obviously there's variation within that, but it's basically to illustrate these are what your priorities are. This is what your focus is when you're living in the elements. You know, thermoregulation is what we mean by shelter in survival terms is keeping your core body temperature in a safe range. A lot more exposure deaths are due to getting too cold than to getting too hot, but both certainly happen. And there's different ways to address both. And so we get into kind of talking about in different environments, how you can navigate thermoregulation. And that is your first concern. And then water is your next priority. And so we talk about how to find water in different environments, which is typically based on Gravity, first of all, the shape of the land, the topography, because water, like everything, follows gravity, it goes down, but then also identifying the plant life, wherever it's more robust and, you know, more green and more diverse, that's indicative that there's some water. Obviously, sometimes that's groundwater that you have to dig into the water table. But those principles will lead you to water in really any environment. And then also some little hacks about collecting dew and things like that. And then after we talk about how to find water, we talk about how to treat water. In a primitive situation, which means, you know... You didn't bring any modern gear with you. You have what the earth gives you. And primitive skills are are essentially pre-industrial revolution. Like just what does the earth give us to work with? You know, what are the elements providing to us to make things that are beautiful and useful and to enhance and sustain life? And so when you're dealing with water, really the only surefire way to get water clean, like as clean as it can be, is through boiling it. But there are also other ways that you can improve your odds shy of boiling water if you don't happen to have fire and also ways that you can boil water without having a pot, things like that. And so it would take a long, long time to go into all the details of how to find and treat water. And we stress the importance of hydration. This is probably one of the more important things to say when you're talking about hydration is if you are in a situation where you don't have access to clean water, drink dirty water because you will die of dehydration long before diarrhea will kill you. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., It's about three days, you know, everyone generally is found within three days by search and rescue. And you can die in that time from dehydration, but not from waterborne pathogen. Fire is the priority between water and food because fire helps with every other priority. Fire really is such a basic survival skill. Fire obviously helps with thermoregulation. It gives us light, uh, which also gives us comfort. It cooks food. It cleans water. It helps us make tools. It signals, and it can ward off predators. And so fire is really significant to survival and also comfort. And because it takes so long to starve to death, we put fire as a priority before food, mm-hmm. but when people are lost, they immediately think they're gonna to starve to death. You will feel like you're dying, but you're not. <laughs> and so it's really important to know primitive methods of fire making. So friction fire, and there's several different methods of friction fire, and I am pro at bow drill, my goal this week is to really hone my handrail. (laughs) So fortunately there's pros here like Myron that are great mentors for that. And then in terms of food, you know, what we stress is it's important to know what will kill you first, because there's so few plants relative to how many plants you can eat that will kill you. Obviously that's a lot more important to know, you know, identifying whatever those are in the environment that you're in and then just knowing what plants are available to eat. And it's the opposite with water. If you only have access to questionable plants, don't eat them. If you don't know what it is, don't eat it because it takes so long to starve to death. And so we talk first about foraging because everything in a quote survival situation is energy conservation and plants don't run. So that's our first focus is what plants can we eat? And we go over some of the most common basic wild edibles that are pretty identifiable and that exist in most environments, which are grasses. And so the seed and the rhizome of grasses are edible 99.9% of the time. Like most of the grains that we eat, those are grasses or all the grains we eat are grasses. And then particular grass, cattail, we talk about that because that is such a, they call it the survival supermarket. You know, every part of that plant at some point of the year is edible dandelions are another one that everyone recognizes every part of the plant is edible though i wouldn't recommend eating the puff you can eat the little seed attached to the puff but every other part of dandelion is edible and then coniferous trees so anything with a cone you know you can eat the cambium layer of bark you can eat the pine nuts you can eat young tender new growth of the greens and you can make tea even from the more fibrous bitter more mature greens acorns of course Acorns are a staple. They have the fats. They've got the carbs. They are a really excellent survival food. And then we get into like some trapping and animal processing. So that's the basics of shelter, water, fire, food. So that's really where you start. My current main gig is that I hire wilderness therapy guides and therapists. So I do hiring and recruiting, which I do remote. So I can, I live in my bus. I travel all around the American West and into Mexico and do this hiring job as I go. I currently work for a program called Wingate Wilderness Therapy, and I've worked with them on and off since 2011, mostly as a guide for a little while as a field director, and now just doing their hiring. And these two programs that I've mentioned, the Inasazi Foundation and Wingate Wilderness Therapy, to my knowledge in the landscape of the industry of adolescent intervention, really are doing something unique, both in terms of that philosophical approach and therapeutic model, but also in terms of having a truly immersive wilderness experience that is farther on the spectrum towards the primitive. So for instance, we don't have a base camp We don't have cabins or tents somewhere. We're completely nomadic. We throw up a tarp shelter if it looks like rain. We stay off trail. We only use headlamps if it's an emergency. No lighters or matches, only fire by friction. And we have just enough gear to keep us safe. And we make our backpack frames out of sticks even. And so the idea is to create the greatest contrast possible between the world that got us sick and the world where we're going to get better. The industry knows wilderness therapy works. The more immersive it is, the better and the faster and the deeper it goes. And so we're not doing anything to intensify Fire contrive the struggle. That's not what makes us different than other wilderness therapy programs. In as much as it's safe, we're allowing it. We're not interfering with that challenge and that struggle. And it's a particular kind of pressure provided by the natural world that our ancestors generally couldn't opt out of but we have to intentionally opt into. Mm -hmm. And when we expose ourselves to that external and physical pressure that's prescribed with so much wisdom by the natural world, there's in this internal emotional and mental resilience that develops. On the flip side of the struggle, there's the peace, the still, the tranquility, the serenity that we are so deficient in as modern humans and all of the noise and clutter and distraction and programming advice. And so it really just gives space for a hard reset. It never doesn't work. You can't have an immersive experience in the wilderness and not be transformed by it. When you say wilderness therapy, unfortunately, people sometimes think, oh, like a boot camp. And the philosophy of the two programs I work for couldn't be farther from it. But in general, wilderness therapy, all the programs I'm aware of are taking human young out of the zoo and putting them in their natural habitat. And they're remembering how to human, which is a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. Unfortunately, in the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of abuses in adolescent intervention in general. But those programs, to my knowledge, have all been shut down. Thank God. So I have been able to work for two really amazing programs that just make such a great recipe immersive wilderness plus that genuinely relational approach, which in both cases is based on the literature from the Arbinger Institute, which would be something for people to look up if they're interested in that approach to adolescent intervention or just human relationships. And it's just a terrific philosophy that has changed my life. And I love self-help and I love philosophies and I love religions, but the Arbinger Institute has been, I'd say among the most impactful Of any of those for me. It's changed my brain in terms of I'm aware of my own motivations towards other people. I'm aware of if ever I'm objectifying people in these subtle ways that we don't even know we're doing it versus they're as real as I am to me. And then having all those years to work with these adolescents in crisis. And practice those skills. Practice seeing people, even when it's hard to see them. And practice identifying my own ego and my own fears and my own agendas and how that interferes with connection and how that interferes with influence. And to just being able to workshop that so extensively for years has been such a gift for me. And I was astonished from the get-go how quickly and deeply I was able to fall in love with people in that environment. And with that philosophy, and I'd never experienced that before, Um, it's changed me. It's changed my character. Mm-hmm. And I have been taught by the people that I've walked in the deserts with around fires and up and overs, you know, on mountains by 13 year olds, as well as the people who I work with. And I have formed falling so deeply in love with people, many of whom I'll never see or speak to again, but just been able to serve and be served by people in such an incredible a natural way. I did work in a program that was behavior modification before I did wilderness therapy, as well as having been in those programs as a kid. And it, specifically in the training, they would say, never let it be personal. That is not a natural way for humans to engage with each other. They were basically telling us, objectify them, <laughs> you know, distance yourself, don't invest in them. Don't let them be real to you. And the rationale was because you'll burn out. If they're real to you, it will hurt. But the philosophy in these programs is it needs to hurt. You need to feel with them. You need to walk with them and wade with them into the deep waters. You need to help shoulder some of their burden. And it's a real practice to know how to take all of that in and then channel it to the divine or or let go of it and channel it through rather than carrying it to where it crushes you when you're no longer effective in the role. And that's been, you know, a lot to learn and practice with over the years. But yeah, wilderness therapy and particularly wilderness therapy done in the highest way is just magic. It is just magic. And so initially, it was a minimum three month commitment. And I thought that's what I would do and that that would transform me enough and I'd go back to my normal life way more enlightened. But you know, too much. I'm ruined for conventional life. I cannot just work for a paycheck. Once I have had my livelihood and what I spend most of my time doing under the sun, over fires with people's hearts wide open interacting with the other elements of nature being on the earth being in my natural habitat being in my body forming genuine connections being a part of something bigger than myself making a contribution being part of something effective I can't not do something on that level anymore and be content you know and be fulfilled so I'm ruined in the best way and I just can't even believe across the board how lucky and blessed I am and I've never been ambitious in any way But all of the things I've needed have come to me. Beautiful things have come to me, you Mm -hmm. know, in spite of myself on many levels. And so I'm just an incredibly, my mom says I live a charmed life. And I think it's true. So
0: beautiful. (laughs) That's the voice of Tamara. And we're sitting inside of her short bus here in the Sonoran Desert. Um, Tamara is a backcountry guide at Wilderness Therapy. She also teaches primitive living and wilderness survival. Thank you so much for Mm -hmm. making time to join me on the trail less traveled. Thank you. I've enjoyed it a lot. (laughs) Can we end your show with three bits of advice for the listener?
1: Three bits of advice. Number one, fear is a thief. And I've had a relationship with fear my whole life where we've really just gone to battle and wrestled. And there is a place for that relationship. And I'm working out a healthy relationship with fear through much trial and error and loss and heartache. But I've covered some significant ground in that. And I made an intention, I think, in 2013 to say yes to things that scared me. If there was no other reason not to do it, except for that it was scary, I had to do it. That has just changed my path in beautiful ways. Beautiful ways. I would say number two, wherever you're at right now in your relationship with the mother, with the natural world, go deeper. Get more intimate with the other elements of nature. You're a part of it. Find your place in it. And number three, number three, I would say in relation to where we are right now, not just as a nation, but as a human race, there are a lot of voices or temptations or rationales that would have us distracted, divided, and afraid. My rebellion is to love and trust my neighbor. Whatever conclusions they've come to and whatever practices they're doing with those conclusions, to love and trust them. Sit with people around fires and in hot springs, have conversations with them face-to-face. And you'll see, I've come to a different conclusion. And I'm doing something different, but you're not crazy. What you just said makes sense. Mm-hmm. Have those conversations. Be with people. Don't write people off. You'll miss out. Talk to strangers. Don't write off your loved ones. For petty divisions, don't be manipulated to let go of relationships and to let go of people. Relationship is why we're here. It's the most important thing. Connect, see people, love. It's hard and it hurts and it's worth it. It blesses us, it enlightens us, it enlivens us, it lifts us. Because it's challenging, it is so good for us. Don't opt out of that challenge and miss the good stuff. Beautiful. What song would you like to end your show with? My favorite song, oh, which aligns really, really well, actually, with that last little bit I said. I'm a mediocre singer, which I'm grateful for. I'm not a great singer, and I always feel intimidated to share this song because it's such a good song that I feel like... I really want it to have a beautiful voice, yeah. <laughs> but I'll offer it with what I've got. This is a song by the Avet brothers who are one of my favorite bands. And it's a song that just moves me so deeply. And particularly, I just did end of life care for my grandma and walked her to that transition and sat with her as uh, she took her last breath. And this was a song that I sang to her in her final couple hours I'm nervous. (laughs) Let me catch my breath.
2: When my body won't hold me anymore and it finally lets me free, will I be ready? When my feet won't walk another mile and my lips give their last kiss goodbye, will my hands be steady as I lay down my fears, my hopes, and my doubts? the rings on my fingers and the keys to my house with no hard feelings when the sun hangs low in the west and the light in my chest won't be kept held at bay any longer when the jealousy fades away and it's ash and dust for cash and lust and it's just hallelujah and love in thought, love in the word, love in the songs they sing in the church. And no hard feelings. When my body won't hold me any more and it finally lets me free, where will I go? Will a trade wind take me south through Georgia grain, tropical rain? or snow from the heavens will i join with thee, ocean blue or run into a savior true and shake hands laughing and walk through the night straight to the light holding the love i've known in my life and no hard feelings Under the curving sky, I'm finally learning why It matters for me and you to say it and mean it too For life and its loveliness and all of its ugliness Good as it's been to me I have no enemies, I have no enemies, I have no enemies.
0: Namaste Missoula and my friends around the world, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled the Trail 103.3's locally harvested adventure radio series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. The show premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream the show live online by visiting trail1033.com. The Trail Less Traveled is also a podcast available on all platforms, and you can view the full show archive, photography, and learn more about our outreach programs by visiting the official website, traillesstraveled.net. My adventure tip this week regards various techniques for making fire, which is one of the essential survival tools. If the concept of making a fire using a bow drill or just your two hands is intimidating, never underestimate the power of backpacking with a small magnifying glass. A magnifying glass makes a fire with the help of heat from the sun. This is done by focusing the glass for 50 to 60 seconds under the sun. The sun rays pass through the lens of the glass, focusing the heat at one specific and small point where the fire begins after producing some smoke. The kindling that you can prepare easily with your hands would be to gather dry grass, rub the grass vigorously between your hands to make small fine fibers, pile those fibers up on other grass, and then various forms of kindling and other dry material you can find in the natural environment. And also, remember, your magnifying glass doesn't have to be large. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, I encourage you to do something for Mother Earth. And also, get outside. Shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. Hello there. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. And I wanna take a very short break to thank our sponsor, New West Knifeworks. When you love the tools you use, everyday chores become a joy. A finely crafted knife is an extension of the hand that welds it. That's the motivating idea behind New West Knifeworks founder, Corey Milligan. Milligan moved to Jackson Hole to pursue the good life in his early 20s. To earn a living while enjoying the outdoors, he worked as a line cook in local restaurants. His interest in cutlery came from the desire to make a knife that would better express his love of cooking. New West Knife Works was born out of that passion, a passion which continues to keep the company on the cutting edge. All of New West Knifeworks' culinary, hunting, and recreational knives are made in the Tetons with the finest American steel and tested by the professional chefs, Guides, anglers, and hunters of Jackson Hole, from the New York Times and Wall Street Journal to Bon Appetit and Forbes, top tastemakers appreciate cutlery that is as beautiful as it is useful. Visit newwestknifeworks.com.